toddler's ABCs. Athletics beyond coronavirus. Hillel Cutler's ABCs. Athletics beyond coronavirus. Hillel Ascribe Welcome to Hillel Cutler's ABC's Athletics Beyond Coronavirus. I'm Hillel Cutler, a veteran journalist who specializes in both healthcare and sports. Sometimes I write about healthcare within sports, like medical providers who work at ski resorts or those tending to athletes at the Olympics. In this era of the coronavirus and the lockdown that is helping to save our lives by limiting the spread of the disease, I think often of what the people who work in sports are experiencing at a time that they would normally be on the field or the court or the rink. I think of the athletes, the coaches, the broadcasters, the executives, the game day staff, and I'm interested in how fans are faring now. On this podcast, I'll be interviewing them about the very real here and now, and also about the day after, when the lives that we prefer to live can resume, and when the sports we love return. I welcome your comments, including suggestions for interviews. Just email me at hk at hillelthescribecommunications.com. My guest today is Mel Antonin. For the past decade, Mel has worked for Masson, the Mid-Atlantic Sports Network, which is the cable TV station of both the Baltimore Orioles and Washington Nationals baseball teams. Mel is a panelist on each afternoon's Masson broadcast preceding Orioles and Nationals games, along with less frequent broadcasts during baseball's offseason. He previously covered Major League Baseball for 25 years for USA Today. He began his career covering sports at South Dakota's largest newspaper, the Argus Leader. Mel has coronavirus and is recovering from home in Washington, D.C. Mel Antonin, welcome to Hillel Cutler's ABC's Athletics Beyond Coronavirus. Hello, it's good to be with you. Yeah, it's great, great, to, great to talk to you, Mel. I'm wondering, how are you feeling now? I'm feeling good. Um, the symptoms for, uh, I had some very wicked symptoms with the coronavirus for about, uh, for about 25 days, I was isolated in my bedroom, and the symptoms were pretty wicked with fever, uh, chills that lasted seven and eight hours, body aches, night sweats, stuff like that. And then just one morning, I got up, and they disappeared, just like the doctor said they would. And so I'm, I'm in the process of, uh, it's been a week since I've had any symptoms, and uh, so I think that's a step in the right direction. But it was, uh, it was pretty tough being isolated for... Uh, for that long, but it was the right thing to do. So when, when will you be getting the go-ahead to be out and about again, to be with your family, to be outside? That's, that's a good question. We're, uh, uh, according to the, the doctors that I'm dealing with at John Hopkins in Baltimore, don't really know for sure what the next step is. Uh, uh, we're going, my wife and I are going by the CDC website that said if you're clear of symptoms for 72 hours, you should be not contagious, and you should be, uh, you know, you should be clear. But uh, we're meeting with my doctor tomorrow, and I think I'm going to have to take a couple of uh, uh, nose swab tests in the next couple of days to make sure I'm clear. But you know, even if I am clear, and even if I am immune now to uh, coronavirus, I'm going to be awfully careful because the last thing you want to do is give it to somebody, or you know. Doctors and health officials just aren't sure what the next step is going to be. But uh, right now, I guess the best way to say it is I'm over my symptoms, uh, my painful symptoms, and I'm very weak to the point where walking down the stairs uh, knocks me out for a while. But uh, that's stuff that can be fixable. That's very fixable stuff with uh, that's fixable stuff with uh, with rehabilitation. So you said that you've been symptom free for a week, but when did you when did you start feeling better? I started feeling better. Uh, see, today is uh, Sunday. A week ago, Thursday, uh, I just woke up one morning and I told my wife, "I don't think I have a fever." Mm -hmm. um, I, I was having fevers of 101, 102, 103, and the doctor said, "Don't come in unless your fever hits 104, or 105." So we were double checking that, you know, almost hour 
properly to make sure that it never hit 105. It never did. And uh, but I just want they kept telling me that you know your immune system is down a little bit because right before this I had a liver issue that put me in the hospital for five weeks. And uh, they said your immune system is strong enough to handle the, the coronavirus. You don't need to be in the hospital unless you have a high temperature or um, you have breathing issues. And I never had breathing issues, so that was uh, that was good news. But it was it's very scary to go to bed at night, Hill, and and uh, and think, am I going to have breathing issues that I'm going to sleep through, and could I die tonight? Given uh, you just don't know what what your breathing is. You didn't know how the symptoms were going to come along. Uh, sometimes symptoms would show up in the morning, sometimes in the afternoon, and they're very unpredictable when they would show up. I mean, you're, you're saying that you actually were afraid of dying. Yeah. Well, I was afraid of having breathing issues, which could lead to death. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, when you go to bed at night, it's just it's kind of scary if you're sleeping very well. And, uh, you know, you wake up with breathing issues, that can be kind of scary. My wife had the COVID-19 at the same time I did, and she didn't have any of the other symptoms that I had, like the, 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 the chills and the fever, but she had breathing issues. And uh, so when you have breathing issues, you just don't know. Like sometimes her chest would tighten up and she'd have to sit down for a while, but that was awfully, that was awfully scary. And you just didn't know if they were going to show up, uh, particularly at night, and that, that, that was worrisome. So how did you each know that you had coronavirus? Like, what was, what was the first indication, or did you both take tests immediately? How did, how did that develop? Well, I was, you know, I had a liver disease that I was working on and taking chemotherapy for. I was in the hospital for five weeks prior to this, and, uh, and my last chemotherapy treatment uh, I started coughing, and of course they take your temperature before, and I had kind of a dry cough, and the, and the doctor said, I'm not sure you can take your last treatment here or not, so we're going to test you for uh, the coronavirus. So they did. Um, they did, and I tested positive, and uh, that was that, and so then they quarantined me in my bedroom. They said it will take two weeks normally to get rid of the symptoms, but given your immune system, It'll probably take an extra. it probably take an extra week, and sure enough, it did. But uh, my wife never got tested because of all the issues with testing in the United States. But she had um, she had some of the same issues that I had, uh, particularly with the breathing issues. And so she just assumed that she had some form of uh, COVID nineteen. And uh, in the last uh, in the last week or so, she's been very strong and been able to go play basketball with my son. And I think she's coming out of it as well. When was the last time that you saw each other face-to-face, like in the same room, for example? Well, she... I didn't see my son for 27 days. I would, mm-hmm. I could hear him going up and down the stairs because, you know, he was doing his online schoolwork. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just going up and down to get something to eat or whatever. But at night, he would, we would FaceTime. He would call me, even though he was just 20 feet down the hallway. And we would talk about the day, but I didn't see him for about 27 days. And since my wife had already had it, she wore a mask, and she came in, and, uh, you know, she brought dinner, she brought meals. She uh, she did about everything that, that could be done. She was very busy, even though she was sick, because I was really sick, and I could barely get out of bed. Well, that's a hell of a double double whammy, I mean, to have these illnesses, diseases, one right after the other. There was, a, there was a time, there was about four or five days when my wife was in the spare bedroom. I was in the master bedroom. Neither one of us could get out of bed, and my son was running the show. He was, hmm. he was getting lunches and dinners and everything ready. And, uh, you know, he said he wasn't scared, but I think I was scared because, you know, just because neither one of us could get up. And, you know, it's just, it was a very scary time, but I think we're over that now. So I think we have a new perspective on what it's like to be working toward healthy, uh, having, having a good health, having good health. Well, so how, he's only 13, right? So how has he been coping? I mean, yeah. he's had both his parents with this very serious disease that's scaring the daylights out of everybody. So how did he handle it, you know, let's say emotionally? How did, how, how was it for him? Well, we kept asking him how he was doing mm-hmm. and uh, he seemed to be doing fine. 
uh, we kept telling him that we're going to be all right. It's just going to take some time. There's no indication that either one of us could die. So you don't have to worry about that. And it's just going to take some time. And you're being a very big help. We were just very positive. We didn't, we didn't uh, hide any facts. We just told him that, we just told him that, uh, we just gave him the truth. And uh, he seems to, he seems to uh, have grown up quite a bit. And, um, you know, I think he's doing fine. He's doing well in school, online. He likes, uh, he likes online schooling a lot better than going to school because he can <laughs> control his own schedule. So mm -hmm. I think he's dived into schoolwork a little bit, and I think that's helped. But he doesn't have Little League. That's got to be hard, right? No Little League, no soccer. Mm -hmm. um, what, he does, what he has been doing is we have a basket, a 10-foot basket outside of our, in our back alley. And every night he's been out shooting baskets, and now he's interested in playing basketball next uh, next winter. So maybe that's the next step in sports mm. for him. Okay. So how did you? I mean, I know of course you were not at spring training this year because of you're not feeling well. So how did you? How did you react when you heard that the illness was had, had, had progressed to the extent that first the NBA and then the NHL and then Major League Baseball shut down? I was in shock. I couldn't believe it was ha happening. Uh, you kept saying to yourself, well, it'll only be a couple of weeks. He'll figure this out in, in at least a month, and everything will get back to normal. But it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And now we're in the position we're in where we might not even have a baseball season, or we're going to have a very weird baseball season. But my first reaction was, well, they'll get this fixed. They always do. But, uh, you know, for a lot of reasons, it's it's a huge problem and a worldwide problem. Yeah, I mean, baseball has shut down before for strikes, lockouts, world wars, that kind of thing, briefly at least. Uh, and of course, 94, maybe the most recent one in terms of a long-term um, shutdown. But this is uh, this could wipe out, as you said, could wipe out the whole season. Even though there, ha I mean, there have been all these reports about different plans that Major League Baseball is considering. And I'm wondering, whether you consider them any any of them viable, possible, reasonable to do? I think they're very risky. Mm -hmm. uh, the Arizona plan, where you have all thirty teams in one city, and you're and you're following CDC guidelines with social distancing and all that, players sitting in the stands. I think it's still very risky because of all the other workers you need to make a baseball to make a baseball team go. If it is dangerous for fans, I don't see how it couldn't be dangerous for. Um, workers like the grounds crew, the medical staff, and and the players as well. It's just uh, I think it's very very risky. You know, you have the Arizona plan where all thirty plan all thirty teams are in one state, and then the other plan is to have the Florida teams and the Arizona teams from spring training play um, play a regular season and then go to the World Series from there. But I think it's very very risky. And Major League Baseball can come up with a lot of different plans, but really it's going to be up to the CDC and the health officials to decide whether or not there's a baseball season. Right, right, yeah, most definitely. I mean, what would be the benefit, do you think, if any, what would be the benefit of, of having a season that would not be a 162-game season, would have maybe some sort of really unusual alignment of teams in a particular geographic area as opposed to the six divisions that exist now. What what benefit would, do you see in, in having even a semblance of a season? Well, uh, you know, if they play an 80-game season, I don't know how legitimate it is, but I would, I would assume that if they did the Arizona plan or the two-state plan or any other plan, it would, it would, be, uh, it would be enough of a novelty that that even though the season might not be legitimate, it would be a distraction for everybody that's dealing with the pandemic. So I think I think it would be good if you could if you could guarantee health for everybody. But you can't guarantee health for everybody. I mean, uh, the 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 coronavirus cases in Arizona go up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, just kind of like a yo-yo. But I think the benefit would be an incredible distraction, and, and maybe Major League Baseball would learn a few things. Uh, about shortening the season, about making the games go quicker. Uh, there could be a lot of benefits involved in that. But, um, you know, again, 
I think it would be I think it would be a great distraction. I don't, I don't know how much money the players would make. I don't know how much money the owners would make. I don't know how much money they could recoup back because ticket sales, parking, and all that are such a big part of revenue streams. But um, it would definitely be if they started with all thirty teams in Arizona and played triple headers every day. Mm-hmm. People are stay at home mode. Uh, it, it it could be uh, quite a distraction, but boy, I think it's risky. Yeah. Well, of course, if you go back to World War II, that was the the well known conversation between Major League Baseball and President Roosevelt about the idea of well, should we shut down? Roosevelt said no. You should keep it going. We need it for the morale of the country, yeah. which was kind of well, a yeah. And, uh, that's true. And uh, you know they played baseball during the 1918 Spanish flu when it was when that was raging like crazy too. In fact, I just ordered a book about it. I can't wait to read it. Mm. Uh, It'll be arriving soon, and I'll have a good sense of that history. But the one thing I can compare it to Hillel is uh, is the 1989 World Series uh, that was interrupted by an earthquake. I was covering that for USA Today, mm-hmm. and three or four days, a week after the uh, a week after the the World Series stopped, uh, I remember going with the Giants players to people to see people that had been displaced from their homes and been injured and everything. And all those people were telling Will Clark, go play baseball, go beat the athletics. They wanted baseball to come back for a distraction. And I think, I think that's, that's the value of baseball. But uh, I'll never forget some of those uh, displaced fans. They were hurting. They were without homes. There was a lot of issues. But uh, they wanted baseball to come back. They wanted to see the World Series. And, you know, it came back. And, uh, and so I think, yeah, I think there's a social benefit to playing baseball games as long as it's safe. Some of that, of course, was occurred even more recently after the September 11th terrorist attacks when after a break of a week, a week and a half, the games resumed and um, and, and then the, the season continued from that point on. I think it went, I think all the games were made up ultimately, although just a little bit later, season ended a little bit later than scheduled to make up for those lost dates. Yeah. Yeah, the fact that they came back and played in New York, mm-hmm. it was a very emotional night. Even reporters who are kind of crusty and, uh, and um, you know, supposed to be objective had tears in their eyes. It was a very emotional moment when, uh, when, when they returned to New York. And, and uh, <coughs> I think it was a good thing as long as everybody was safe. Were you at that game when Mike Piazza hit that famous home run against the Braves? Yes, I was there. Really? Well, what, <laughs> yeah, what, did, what did it feel like to you when, you know, let's say before the game, when you got there and you saw the fans coming in, you saw the police officers on security duty, and what, what was the, that dynamic, what was that atmosphere like even before the game what, started? Well, I think everybody was happy that baseball was back, you know, but it was, hard to, it was hard to show that emotion. You didn't really know what to say. You were, you were covering the story from a, from a news standpoint, and you were worried more about what other people were saying. But I think deep down, people were very excited to have baseball back, but they were they were fearful of showing it for disrespect to everything that had gone on. So it was kind of that mix of emotions there. Yes, baseball's back, but really nobody knows how to act. Uh, even, though, uh, even though there was a baseball game, and even though there was a distraction and a new, and a new round of happiness, it was like, let's be calm. Questions here. Let's not celebrate too much to the point where we're disrespectful to the people that are hurting because of 9/11. So it was a, it was a real mix. You you know when you're privately you're going oh good baseball's back, but there was just this shadow of uh, shadow of grief I would say that uh, overtook everything. And so it was you wanted to celebrate baseball, but yet you wanted to be respectful. Hmm. Right. Well, of course at that. From that point on, we have seen um, a dedication to security that did not exist to that extent before. I mean, the security checking, you know, even to this day, we're limited on what we can bring into a stadium, so the see-through bags, the black, you know, some policies banning backpacks and things like that. And uh, that kind of security was instituted in the direct aftermath, and maybe something like that will have to be done in sports certainly in the immediate aftermath maybe longer term than that even after this situation ends yeah who knows what's going to happen it's it's we're in for big changes 
I told my son the other day that even if they say that baseball is fine and it's going to come back to Washington on July 5th or July 6th or whatever, I'm not going to trust it to the point where I'm going to start going to baseball games with my kid. I think it's just too risky. And, um, you know, it might be healthy, it might be fine, but, you know, I think it's going to take a couple of years before you see packed stadiums and people going to games and being really relaxed. Um, no matter what plan they use now, there's going to be a, a trepidation to go to the ballpark. Well, I, I'm wondering whether whether this kind of crisis has the potential to have even a more devastating effect. I mean, could it potentially wipe out, like permanently wipe out, a sports league? I mean, Major League Baseball, NFL, NBA, and NHL are on pretty solid ground financially, but maybe some of the other sports leagues, maybe the minor leagues, can 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 be carried out to that extent, do you think, in a worst-case scenario? Well, you know, minor league, minor league baseball is very important now for all the prospects that are growing up, trying to grow up and get some experience, so they're going to be a year behind. But mm. yeah, it could, wipe, it could make minor league baseball very difficult. I don't think it's going to make the four majors... I don't think they're going to have any problem coming back, but I think it's going to take some time to come back. I don't think one day you have an empty stadium where nobody's playing, and the next day you have 45,000 people there, and everything turns back to normal. I think it's going to take a couple of years. But the minor leagues are interesting because think of all the think of all the the, the blue chip prospects that are losing playing time. That uh, that can hurt. That can have an effect long term. Right. I mean, I, I've been thinking about exactly that issue when. We weren't sure what would happen with the Tokyo Olympics. I mean, as of now, it's pushed back only a year, but it could have been something canceled, and maybe ultimately will be. We don't know what the situation will be like in a year, and if so, what will happen to the athletes who will never have gotten the chance to compete in an Olympics, who might have been good enough to compete in 2020, but by 2024, in their summer sports, they'll have sort of graduated out in terms of age or whatever, and may, maybe not ever reach the Olympics, whereas they might have otherwise. Yeah, exactly. You know, when you're talking about the Olympics and cancellation, what, what Japan was going to do, you know, the issue was never the Olympics itself. The, the issue was athletes trying to train couldn't find a safe place to train. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, was the, that was the big problem that everybody was overlooking. They were always thinking about what are we, how are we going to stage the Olympics, how are we going to stage the Olympics. The bigger issue was how are the, how are the athletes going to train? Where are they going to find someplace safe to to, to train and be ready, and that was uh, that was chaotic to say the least. Well, I think that's what really is what was responsible for the postponement of a year was the fact that the athletes would not have been ready in time for 2020. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's just it, you know you just don't know. Uh, you can go to a gym that's very clean and very you know very uh, uh, progressive as far as staying. Uh, staying on top of things but you just don't know that's that's the scary thing about this coronavirus is the uncertainty and um so they're they're still you know it's still a big issue I, i'm wondering mel what you miss about the sport that you cover major league baseball which is still america's past national pastime what do you miss about not being at this is a nice sunday afternoon you'd be going to Probably the Orioles or the, I didn't check the schedule, but probably the Orioles or the Nationals, one of the two would be at home, if not both. You'd be going to one of the stadiums possibly today. You're not going to today, you're not going to tomorrow, next week, and maybe next month, maybe not at all the season. What is it that, that will affect you the most about not having baseball games to to be at personally, to speak to players, to even watch on television? Well, I, I miss just the, the journalism aspect of it going day to day. Mm -hmm. uh, getting excited when you think of a new news story, when you think of a new angle to, uh, you know, to, to a story that's been going on a while. So I miss, I miss the work. I miss the journalism, uh, just the journalism that is involved in talking to players and trying to find stories. That never gets old for me as it never gets old for you. You know, you know how excited you get when you find an angle that you really like and it all works out. Mm -hmm. So... You know, I miss that excitement and that drama. It's, there's always a, you never know which way you're going to go when you go into a clubhouse if, if everything's going to work out or not. But then secondly, I miss just the social aspect of it all. Um, um, being around all the writers, being around all the baseball people, no matter where you go, whether it's in the lunchroom, in the press box, around the batting cage, in the dugout, you'll always hear a new baseball story that's... Uh, 
that's relevant to history. And uh, I think that's the second thing I miss the most. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, being at a stadium is is it is the workplace for you. Yeah, it is. It's um, you know you, you get a little jaded, and um, and um, sometimes you have to you know sometimes you have to take a new a new approach, a new appreciation to what you have. But you know, from the outside looking in, to the average fan, the sports writer's got the greatest job in the world. Mm-hmm. But they don't understand the daily grind. They don't understand the daily hours being away from family and the stress of competing with other top-notch journalists. So it's it, it, it it's fun. It's it's rewarding, but it's not what everybody thinks it is. Mm-hmm. Have you stayed in touch with your colleagues? I mean the. The journalists you'd see at the ballpark or in the Madison studio. Oh yeah, yeah, I keep in touch with everybody. Uh, Jim Palmer called me the other day to see how I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I keep in touch with with writers across the country who call or text and say how you doing, and, and um, so yeah, uh, I keep in touch with everybody as much as possible. And sometimes there's sometimes I'm very grateful. There's so many people that are sending me texts and asking me questions about how I feel. I can't even answer them all. But, um, but it's, yeah, I keep in touch and, and uh, talk to people all across the country. No, it's nice to hear. Well, I'll, I'll sort of take this conversation maybe in a more, more uh, uplifting uh, direction, which is, um, which is your home state. And I, I tell you, when I, when I think of some of the some of the great athletes who've come from South Dakota, the first one, first ones I think of are when I was a younger guy and following baseball, I remember Dave Collins, the outfielder with the Reds, and then the Yankees, pretty fast guy. Uh, Mike Miller, the basketball player, had a long career in the NBA. Of course, Becky Hammond, the great WNBA star, is now a coach with the San Antonio Spurs, one of the first women in a men's sport as a coach. Who are, who are some of the state's athletes who you grew up admiring, whether it was professional, amateur, guys who you guys or women who you you think made an impact on your love of sports? Well, I grew up following the Twins a lot, and uh, and uh, so I was a big Twins fan. We were four hours away from Metropolitan Stadium, and we used to drive there a lot to see baseball games on the weekend. But when you talk about South Dakota athletes, there's guys like Sparky Anderson grew up in South Dakota. Mm. Uh, Dick Green, second baseman for the World Series champion, Oakland Athletics, sure. uh, uh, grew up in South Dakota. Uh, Terry Forster, the Cub of Goo, David Letterman, remember what? Absolutely. Terry Forster, number 51, I think, with the White Sox yeah. and Dodgers, right? Yeah, the Cub of Goo. So. Mm-hmm. But, but I was influenced growing up as a kid in, in, in small town South Dakota uh, by the Twins. Uh, my dad was a vitamin salesman, and he sold vitamins to the twins. So I would help him deliver vitamins to the twins uh, once a month or something like that. So I would hang out in the clubhouse and get to know some of the players. And uh, and uh, you know, to this day, Tony Oliva is still one of our best friends. Uh, he was a good friend with my dad, and Rod Carew took his vitamins. And um, and uh, when I was a kid, I used to just uh, I used to just hang out with. Uh, with all those guys when I would deliver vitamins during batting practice. Really? So tell me about maybe some of those conversations that made an impact on you. Well, those guys were always very nice to me. You know, I was a 9 and 10 year old kid, so I would, um, I would, you know, I would get to watch batting practice from the field. And sometimes I would, uh, hmm. sometimes I would just stand behind the batting cage and watch guys like Rod Crew and Cesar Tobar and Harmon Killebrew hit. But, um, uh, you know, they didn't really give a lot of advice. I mean, they were at work, so they didn't really have time to play catch or talk or say, this is how you hold a fastball, this is what you need to do, or anything like that. But they were always around, and to this day, whenever I talk to Rod Carew or Burt Blyleven or Tony Oliva, they always remember me delivering vitamins to their locker. Is there, well, you mentioned Carew. Of course, Carew overcame a, a terrific health challenge not all that long ago. When he got a um, a transplant, yeah, yeah, Carew uh, Carew uh, really worked hard, and you know he got the transplant, and he's doing very well. In fact, he's he's a spring training coach for the Twins, and he's a big you know obviously he's a big Hall of Famer, a big icon in Minnesota. Uh, the story I remember about him is 
Um, one day, um, he was at his locker drinking a Coke and eating ice cream before a game, and he was complaining about how tired he was. And, um, and my dad said, well, the reason you're tired is you're drinking this stuff. You're drinking a Coke, you're drinking ice cream, you know, you're eating ice cream mm-hmm. before a game. And he said, if I, I'm going to put you on a new diet, and I'm going to give you some vitamins, and I'm going to improve your diet, and your, your energy is going to go way up. And uh, that year, he hit about 340 in the second half of the season and won a batting title. And I've got a story in the Minneapolis Star Tribune where he attributed uh, the change in eating habits to my dad and, 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 and winning the batting championship. Did, did he mention your father by name? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That must have made your dad's day. <laughs> yeah, it was. He was, uh, my dad was a health nut. And, uh, and uh, you know, but that just showed you how back in the 70s, uh, how mom and pop baseball was because they didn't have trainers. They didn't really have a lot of people helping them. You know, they had a feed salesman from South Dakota delivering their vitamins to them. Mm-hmm. That just shows you how small, you know, how small and how mom and pop baseball, major league baseball teams used to run. Well, I'll tell you, I'm fascinated. I'd love to hear about how, how it came to be that you, both you and your father, are members of the South Dakota Sports Hall of Fame. Well, we're the only father-son combination in the South Dakota Hall of Fame. My dad was a big-time baseball promoter, mm-hmm. and he was one of the best baseball players in the state. Uh, he was in a when he was 25 or 26 years old. Uh, he was in a trucking accident where he broke both legs, and um, uh, the doctors told him he'd never play baseball again. He'd never walk again. Mm-hmm. But he ended up playing baseball for about another 10 years, and he was a very good catcher. He was a very good player. And amateur player, and then he was just a constant promoter of baseball in South Dakota, small town baseball, and I think that's how uh, that's how he's always remembered. He built the South Dakota Baseball Hall of Fame. He raised money to build a baseball Hall of Fame in my hometown, and um, and then I guess people thought that the fact that I'd been to thirty World Series and covered Major League Baseball for a long time that's that's basically how I got in because I was not a good athlete. I was uh, an average American League pitcher, American Legion pitcher at best in high school, and uh, uh, but my dad was remembered as Mr. Baseball in South Dakota. He just constantly promoted baseball, started baseball teams, raised money, did all kinds of things like that. He and Tony Oliva used to uh, used to uh, put a hay wagon on back of a pickup and drive to small towns and then have batting clinics where mm. Tony and Dad were sit standing on uh, on the on uh, a hay wagon and uh, giving young kids tips on how to hit. This was in so S- that's how I remember. In, in South Dakota, he brought he brought Oliva. In South Dakota, yeah. Mm. yeah. He and Oliva and Drew used to drive around and do things like that. Really? <laughs> yeah. That must have been some treat to have these two great hitters in your state. Yeah, it was. Uh, Tony used to stay at our house. Tony was a pallbearer at my dad's funeral. Mm. Um, uh, they, they were really good friends. You know, when Tony first came up in the 60s, my dad was a farmer. Tony was a farmer. They couldn't speak much English. They didn't speak much of the same language. But uh, they always got along talking about farming and baseball. And, uh, you know, they've just been really good. They were really good friends for a long, long time. And uh, and to this day, I mean, Tony called me the other day and asked me how I was doing. We stay in touch. That's terrific. Where is he living these days? Tony lives in the same house he he, knew, uh, he lived in when he played for the Twins in the seventies. He lives about two or three miles from the old uh, from the old uh, Metropolitan Stadium, but he lives in in a suburb of Bloomington. Mm-hmm. And um, you know he's at Twins games every night. And he's eighty years old, but he's doing very well. Well, I know you've been a baseball Hall of Fame voter for many many years. What do you think about Oliva's candidacy? Well, I think he's the hitting version of Sandy Koufax. Mm-hmm. You know, Sandy Koufax gets into the Hall of Fame because he was one of the best pitchers for a short period of time. He didn't, he didn't, you know, he had seven or eight good years, but they were dominating years. And I think, I think Tony Oliva is the hitting version of Sandy Koufax in that, um, you know, he was one of the best hitters in baseball for about five or six years 
won batting championships in his first two seasons, but didn't play long enough. And I think, I think there's a, I think there's a, uh, you know, Koufax gets in because of that potential and because of how dominant he was. But I think Oliva deserves the same consideration that Koufax uh, got. And I think when he comes up on the on the, on the veterans committee ballot, I think he's coming up in January or in December again. I think uh, I think I think he has a good chance to get in. I think he deserves to be in, but again, I'm biased because I've known him forever. Mm. I mean, it's going to be strange. I'll tell you to think of. It's, it's strange enough not having Major League Baseball potentially the whole season, but to not have the one sort of glorious day, I mean, the day that I love watching on television from beginning to end, the pre-event, the event, and the post-event of the Hall of Fame induction ceremony in Cooperstown. I've been to two of them when I was, as a fan, never as a journalist, but as a fan many, many years ago. And uh, to watch it on TV with all the coverage and the the um, the in-depth look at each each um, new member's career and the interviews with the teammates and and then of course once the event starts with the speeches and the the the, the way they're so gracious to thank all the coaches and, and and relatives who helped them along the way it's such a special day that I know I think I would miss that more than maybe more than the World Series frankly and yeah. so I'm wondering, you know, what, you've been to so many of those of those inductions. What do you do? You think that baseball will will miss that the same to the same way that it misses the games? Oh yeah, they will because when you think about Derek Jeter, Ted Simmons, and um, Larry Walker, Larry Walker coming in. Oh yeah, it's a huge celebration of baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's a chance where fans get to meet all the Hall of Fame players, and it's just such a great time. The Hall of Fame has already said that they're going to decide in early May whether or not they can handle, whether or not they'll be able to, to uh, have the ceremony or not. But I, I can't imagine 50,000 people in one area. is uh, It could be too much of a health risk to do it. But even when they do have it, given it's Cheater and Walker, and that Simmons is a great story as well. And then, of course, Marvin Miller. Um, you know, they probably won't have it in July. I think the odds against it are having it in July are, are against it, but I think, you know, I think whenever it does come back, it's a great celebration of baseball just because it's so down to earth. It's it's fans meeting the players just on the street, and it's really fun. You know, Cooperstown, I don't know what percentage of their uh, yearly revenue from the shops and stuff and the hotels comes from that weekend, but it's got to be a significant percentage, and to not have that... It's a. It's got to be a big loss for the town. Oh, it's huge. It, I'm sure it's huge. As you said, as you pointed out, Cooperstown is Cooperstown is a very small town. It relies on the Hall of Fame. It relies on tourism, and you know they're going to have to they're going to have to battle it out just like every other small town in America. But it's not going to be easy. Right. Well, especially that particular weekend, um, and especially with Jeter. I mean, being so close to New York City knowing how they drew last year for Mariano Rivera's induction and in the past for Cal Ripken, which I think might still be the record, or it's up there somewhere for the best attended weekend. It's, uh, it's sad because, you know, again, there's so many good stories. Larry Walker's a good story. I love the Ted Simmons story. I was shocked. I'm not shocked. I was a little bit surprised that I got in, but when you read more about his career, you realize he is one of the best hitting catchers in baseball history. And then, of course, Derek Jeter. Um, it's just a very emotional, very uh, exciting time for baseball, and who knows if it's going to go on this year. I'd say the odds are against it. Mm-hmm. I mean, have they talked about maybe holding that, holding maybe two ceremonies next year? Would it be worth it to, you know, I don't know, hold one? Let, let, let's say a best-case scenario and the health threat passes completely by next summer. Would it make sense to, let's say, have one induction in, I don't know, May and one in August? The one, the one in May for this year and one in August for 2021? Well, I don't know if they'll have two in, within, in a short period of time. I was reading a story the other day that said, you know, that they could just combine them and have one ceremony in 2021 because there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of surefire Hall of, ba- Hall of Fame ballot. There's sure, not a lot of surefire Hall of Famers mm. uh, on, on the upcoming ballot in December, which, you know, I think, there might not be anybody selected. You have, you know, you have the issues surrounding Kurt Schilling. 
you have uh, the steroids issues with Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds, but that's going to be the big story in December, how those guys fare. And it might very well be their best chance to get in, just depending on how voters look at the ballot. I don't know how the voters are going to react to Clemens and Bonds. I know that the younger voters in the BBWAA think that they should be in. Uh, I, for one, can't vote for Clemens. I can't vote for Bonds simply because I think there's so much overwhelming evidence that they destroyed the record book uh, that I don't see how they can get in. I mean, if you, if, you, if you let Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds in the Hall of Fame now, you know, what, what would it take to hold somebody out of the Hall of Fame, period? You know, I think, uh, I think, somebody, I think it's up to the BBWAA to, to uh, stand up for the integrity of the game. And so I, I can't vote for Clemens. I can't vote for Bonds. I got along with them great as a reporter. I feel bad about that, but I think somebody has to stick up for the integrity of the game. Now you're still eligible. You're still eligible to vote, right? Yeah, oh yeah. I'm I'm an active member of the BBWAA, so um, you know, there's there's guys that now will retire after ten years. You know, you get to you get to vote. You know, after you become a non-active member of the BBWA, you still get ten years to vote. But there'll be a bunch of guys falling off, a bunch of guys falling off uh, off the radar this year uh, because their ten years of eligibility is up. So that can affect Clemens and Bonds as well. Because I know two or three guys that can't vote this year that normally would vote for Clemens and Bonds. Got it. Okay. So you've lived so many years outside of your home state of South Dakota, and I'm wondering, have you? Have, the fandom that you had early in life for the Twins, has that carried through to now, or is it sort of you, you're in such a Nationals-Orioles frame of mind that that those are the teams that you are rooting for more or, or at least have more of an allegiance to? Well, I still, I still root for the Twins uh, because there's so many people in South Dakota that talk to me about them. It's kind of hard not to follow them. But it brings me back to my childhood whenever you think about the Twins or you see them play. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so it's kind of hard to just, just just disconnect from the Twins and say, I'm going to be a journalist and, and not worry about it. Um, you know, as, as you do, you pull for your story. And uh, so the one thing is, um, I don't really know who I'm a fan of. Mm-hmm. I, 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 um, I don't know who I am. I mean, I, I like the Cardinals. I like the Giants because when I was growing up, I had an uncle in San Francisco that used to tell me tons of stories about Willie Mays and Willie McCovey and Candlestick Park. So I have an affinity for the Giants. I have an affinity for the Cardinals because we had so many close connections growing up uh, in the Midwest with the Cardinals. So I don't really have a team where I, where I live and die, uh, whether or not they win or lose. But it's it, the beauty is how it always brings back to your childhood well the twins yeah. the twins had such an outstanding season last year and they made these big acquisitions in the winter with especially josh donaldson to get to that good core of especially of hitters and you know nelson cruz and a good outfield of uh rosario and kepler and uh, broxton guys like that and of course uh, sano i mean that was a strong team uh, certainly hitting wise strong team uh they won over 100 games last year and we may not get to see them. The one thing that they have is such a good outfield defense. Their defense is very, very strong. Mm-hmm. And then when you add a lot of good pitching, that makes all the difference in the world. And then if you got a team that can hit 300 home runs in a season, and then you add somebody that hit 37 like Josh Donaldson, mm-hmm. they, have all the, they have all the makings of a division champion because they improve their pitching, their bullpen is deep, and their defense is some of the best. They play some of the best defense um, uh, in baseball, particularly with Buxton in center field, um, he is absolutely amazing if he can stay healthy. But yeah, it's sad. I know that people in the Midwest are just they're going, "What is going on?" It would have been a really great. I think it would really have been a great race between Cleveland, the White Sox, and the Twins. Mm-hmm. Still might, but I think you know that's what I was looking forward to: the White Sox coming back, mm-hmm. Cleveland being Cleveland. Uh, there could have been some really interesting games in the American League Central. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm thinking of where where you live, more or less, in Washington. I'm thinking that you're really not all that far from Nationals Park. You're sort of directly north, right, of Nationals Park. Have you ever walked to walked to a game? Oh, yeah. Yeah, several times. Really? You can ride your bike. Mm-hmm. 
ride your bike. It takes about 25 minutes or 30 minutes to walk. If I go as a fan, uh, I'll walk or take the bus, and it's so easy. It's, it takes 10 minutes. Uh, the one thing about walking is that you really get you get really get sweaty, you get really get stinky, especially during Washington summer. So that's kind of un- uncomfortable. But if you walk, it's about a 30-minute walk, and and because it's Capitol Hill, you see tons of people that you know. It's like it's like a small town atmosphere. You can walk, and you're going to run into people that you know, and run into your neighbors. And everybody's kind of doing the same thing. But biking, bus, walk. Very easy to do. Very, very, very convenient. Are there any players who, over the years, that the, the decade or so that the Nationals have had the new stadium, a uh, little over a decade, have there ever been any players who have lived near you? Yeah, Drew Storman lived not too far from me when he, you know, the former relief pitcher, the former closer for the, for the Nats. He, uh, mm-hmm. he didn't live too far away. I'd see him in a restaurant every now and then. Um, but yeah, he only lived about five or six blocks from me. Really? And I'm sure mm-hmm. there might be other players. Yeah, he, mm-hmm. he didn't live far from me. In fact, we were thinking that, uh, you know, I knew him well enough when I worked with his dad at, at XM that we thought maybe he'd even babysit for us once in a while. <laughs> when um, <laughs> He said he would, but we never really got around to doing it. But uh, yeah, Drew Storm was probably the guy that lived the closest. We have, uh, we have politicians that live more more or less around us, like Bernie Sanders doesn't live too far from me. Barack Obama, before he moved, moved into the White House, hmm. didn't live too far from me. Uh, Reince Priebus, the chief of staff for Donald Trump, didn't live too far from me. In fact, his son was on our baseball team hmm. that I coached. And um, so you, you, you have a better chance of seeing a lot, of, a lot more lawmakers than you do baseball players. That's kind of interesting. So you get you get exposure, of course, where you where you live. You get exposure to so much more beyond sports. Obviously, it's uh, the one the the main industry of Washington is the federal government, of course. And you have such smart, interesting people from interesting walks of life, whether working for the government or one of the agencies um, lobbying the government, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a lot of fun, you know. Uh, there's, there's, you know, representatives and senators that have, that had kids our age, my age, my son's age, and, and, and Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts, so we would see them regularly. And uh, what's interesting is you have Republicans and Democrats coming together, but they don't argue. They have a great ton of respect. I don't think there's ever any Republican or ever any Democrat that would show up at a Little League game or a soccer game or whatever and feel like they were going to get... Uh, hammered with political ideas. Uh, socially, when Republicans and Democrats get together, whether it's the, the top representative or, or the senator or whatever, uh, there's a lot of respect for letting people have a good weekend. And, you know, generally speaking, people on the outside fight about politics, but it really doesn't happen in, in Washington. I think, I think politicians are very very uh, comfortable coming to social settings with their kids simply because they know that there's that lack of respect. There's a, that res- that ton of respect that you just don't start arguing with people, even though you, mm. even though you got maybe the sen- you know the congresswoman from Washington State there, and you did totally disagree with her. You, you never bring up politics, so I think that's an, I think that's an interesting aspect of life on Capitol Hill. Are, are, you know, I'm wondering. That makes me think uh, to ask: Are there other other members of Congress, uh, the House of Senate, who you got an interesting insight into who they were based on talking sports or, or Little League sports or soccer, something that had nothing to do with politics at all, but just an in- interesting insight into their personality and their character based on the way sports opened those conversations up for you. Well, yes. In fact, uh, Mitch McConnell and uh, when Mitch McConnell was... You know, he was the head of the Senate. Um, I uh, talked to him for a story on Sports Illustrated uh, about what it's like to have somebody. And who's the guy? Oh, Harry Reid. Mm-hmm. When Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell used to meet every morning, they used to fight back and forth about they couldn't be any more politically different than they were. Mm-hmm. But Harry Reid always told me, and Mitch McConnell always told me, that uh, baseball and Bryce Harper and the Nationals, 
they could always talk about baseball and feel very, very confident. So one time I was doing a story on how how many politicians go to baseball games, and um, Harry Reid, he said, come into my office. He said, I got 10 minutes. We talked for about 45 minutes on baseball. And, uh, and you know, he was a good friend of Bryce Harper because they were both from Nevada. Mm -hmm. and, and then one day, uh, you know, I... I I called Mitch McConnell's press representative and said I'd like to talk to him about baseball sometime. If I could set up an appointment. And about 20 minutes later, I got a call from Mitch. He said, I'm ready to talk ball. <laughs> and he, and um, yeah. he was, he, he knew so much about baseball and the history of baseball. Really? And, uh, and they always laughed. They said, Mitch McConnell, you know, Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell never got along, but boy, they could talk baseball. Well, McConnell might, might, might have been then in, in a bit of an unenviable position because no matter what he knew about baseball, he would never be able to top what the other senator from Kentucky knew about baseball, of course, was Jim Bunning, a Hall of Fame pitcher. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, I never talked to Jim Bunning too much for any particular reason. It just never uh, showed up on my radar screen. But yeah, that's true. And I'm sure... That Mitch McConnell and Jim Bunning did talk because Mitch McConnell was a huge baseball fan. He could go through various lineups in the 40s and 50s and talk baseball all the way through. And uh, and uh, he was his baseball knowledge and acumen was really fun. Hey, Mel Anton, thank you very much for providing such a unique perspective on your life and on these times uh, for the program, Athletics Beyond Coronavirus. And let's just all hope that the Beyond Coronavirus period comes very soon for you and for all of us. Yeah, I think I think I'm on my way. I think I'm feeling very strong. This helped just to have an hour of just talking a little ball and and chatting like we used to do at the ballpark or out at lunch or whatever. So this is really relaxing and fun. I got to go do some work now. I got to go do some rehabilitation. But I appreciate uh, having you being on your show. Mel, thanks very much. Take care of yourself. All right, thanks, Al. We'll see you again.